As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show. This is the weekend review where we discuss the major talking points from all the weekend's action from across the Atlantic. I'm Jack Collins and I'll be your host and I'm joined by the Athletic's very own Mr. Jay Harris. How you doing, mate? I'm all good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. It's been an interesting weekend of football across Europe, Jay. So we're going to be discussing various things today that we've learned from the weekend and the questions that is thrown up as well. We'll talk about a Bayern team brimming with confidence in the Bundesliga. We'll try and work out just what's going on at Liverpool. Good luck to us in advance. <laughs> uh, but I would like to start in Serie A with Napoli, who just keep on winning, Jay. They made light work of Sassuolo. They won 4-0 on Saturday afternoon on Paramount+. Plus. That's third wins in a row in all competitions now I just kind of want to start with at what point can we start looking at this team not just as Scudetto contenders because I think that's been pretty obvious for a while but potentially as Champions League contenders as well like no Italian side has made it to the Champions League semi-final since Roma in 2018 after that famous Roman Tada against Barcelona at the Olympico but right now I'm looking at this team and I'm wondering where the weaknesses are yeah, exactly. I think any team that's won 13 games in a row in, in Serie A um, deserves to be taken really seriously in, in the Champions League as well. And I know Liverpool are in a, a little bit of disarray, but to kind of so comprehensively beat Liverpool um, in that group. And I'm sure when the kind of draw first officially got made, people would have said, oh, Liverpool will finish top of that group easily. Yeah. Um, but to see the way Napoli have kind of dominated... But it's interesting what you say about um, no Italian teams even reached the semi-final stage since 2018 because Napoli have never actually been in the quarterfinals, let alone the semi-finals. So although they definitely kind of have the, the quality to go quite deep in this competition, um, to actually win it uh, and to be serious contenders would just be absolutely insane because they'd be essentially rewriting history and it would just be, I guess, the icing on the cake of a season that's at the beginning, which I think we'll touch upon in a minute, a lot of people thought was going to be a little bit of doom and gloom and it just keeps surprising us at every turn. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting in the Champions League because obviously what is now the Maradona, the, the San Paolo, 
has always been one of those places that people say you have to go and watch Champions League football there. And, and mm. yet, as you say, it's not been a massively happy hunting ground for Napoli. But the you know the the roar from the crowd as as the anthem gets sung is one of those kind of famous football events almost you know you get those videos every year of people filming the stadium from miles away being able to hear the champions ringing out from it and and I do think it's, it's one of those where you're looking at this as, as kind of a romantic element of it as well but it does feel like it has the on-pitch kind of kudos to back it up this season yeah definitely and I should add just for a, for a real throwback I think I was more shocked they'd never reached even the quarterfinal stage back in the era when they had like Cavani, Levetsi and, and Hamshik. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, it's always been one of those grounds where it just seems to be a complete cathedral um, and one of those places which deserves those kind of historic Champions League nights and that any team is going to have difficulty getting a result at. So when you kind of combine that with what's going on at the pitch at the moment under Luciano Spalletti, it's just like an absolutely perfect storm for them to go to go really fast. So it's going to be exciting to see who they get in the next round and if they can actually kind of, kind of back that up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, there's depth across the board now. And you go back to last year when Victor Osimhen got injured and that injury really set them back. They couldn't replace him, even with all the experience and goals of Dries Mertens, who stepped up admirably. But Napoli looked nothing like the same side that they had done with Osimhen. But this year in the six games that Victor Osimhen missed... They scored 19 goals. Giacomo Raspadori notched four. Gio Simeone got three. When Andre Frank Zambo Anguissa has been out, Tongi and Dombele has stepped up. It just feels like whatever happens with this side and, and the way that they recruited in the summer means that instead of being over-reliant on a player of Ossiman's quality, and look, it's perfectly reasonable to be over-reliant on a player like Ossiman because he is so good and he brings so much to the team and he is one of the complete number nines in world football. But without him... They've been just as good. They haven't missed a step. Well, that's that's important for any team who wants to be competing for titles and going deep in, in cup competitions. If one of your biggest pieces gets taken out of your puzzle, how are you going to cope? How are you going to react? And I think, as you've kind of alluded to there, Napoli last season struggled with that a lot. They didn't quite know what to do when Osimhen wasn't in the team. But what we've seen this year is that they've kind of in the transfer market, recruited smartly and kind of looked at that as as a big, as a weakness and kind of got those composite parts around Osimian. So not even if he's injured, but if he's not playing particularly well, they kind of have the, the pieces where they can switch the formation up. They can kind of switch the tactics and the style up to so that other people can kind of contribute with goals. And that's absolutely vital because that's, that's kind of like the difference between a good team and a great team, right? Um, yeah. When you've kind of got multiple options and you can hurt teams in different ways and it's not just relying on that one striker to kind of bail you out every time. Yeah, 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 definitely. And and this has been what's been interesting with, with Napoli because we look at their teams in the past and we don't need to go back one year. We talk of Mertens. Everyone saw the exodus at the end of last season. He was their record ever goal scorer. Lorenzo Insigne, the homegrown captain who left mm. to go and play in MLS. Kalidou Koulibaly, leader of the defence and one of the best centre-backs in Italy, leaving for Chelsea. The questions were always with if Napoli could cope with that amount of exodus. And they are answering those questions. To be honest, I find the whole thing a little bit ridiculous because I remember in one of our first shows, we were talking about it and kind of not even just from a quality aspect, but almost from like um, an experience and a leadership aspect to kind of lose those players that you mentioned, Kulabai, Insigne, Mertens, Milik left as well, although he'd kind of been on, on loan a little bit. Just 
to kind of have that many players ripped out of a team at once and to undergo this this rebuilding job or what we probably all assumed was a rebuilding job. Mm. You're looking at it and thinking, okay, Spalletti's got a pretty tricky job on his hands this season to, to kind of manage that transition from those kind of historical Naples figures, those people who've kind of written the, written themselves into the club's history to kind of move on and, and usher this new generation in. And normally when we see clubs go through that, it takes time. Um, you know, if we compare it to Arsenal and all those slightly different level of quality players, Arsenal found it kind of difficult to move on when they've lost Aubameyang, Lacazette, etc., etc. Whereas Napoli have just, it's astounding the way that they've just taken that loss in their stride. They brought all these new players in and it just seems to work immediately. I feel like that's so rare in football. So hats off to the recruitment because it means they just identified the right characters, the right players to kind of fit into that squad so seamlessly. But then obviously also to Spalletti for kind of finding a system that brings them all together and lets their quality shine. But like I said, I just find it so crazy that at the beginning of the season, so many people were, were writing them off for, for losing those key players and they've they've just made a complete mockery of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in kind of how the the emotional aspect of this comes into play. I wrote, I wrote an article in the summer about Neapolitan nightmares and their propensity to heartbreak, I think is how I phrased <laughs> it at the time. And I think there is an element of this that kind of, we look at Napoli and they are kind of a football romantics dream in so many ways, right? They're, they're such a storied club and therefore everything they do is, is steeped in narrative. The whole Maradona aspect of the club, that, that 1990... European trophy and, and the, the mm. Scudettos that he won there. You know, lot, two years ago, I was looking back at them and going, right, Maradona's died. Is this the moment that they use that kind of emotional narrative to drive themselves on to something special? And then you go to, to last season, you think, right, this is Lorenzo Insigne's last season at the club. Is he going to be the one to finally break that curse and take them to a title? And, and it hasn't kind of come off by the time. And so you're looking at these players, you know, Mertens, Insigne, Koulibaly as well, who'd all bought so much into the culture of the club. And there's that element of almost pressure on their shoulders because they because they love it so much and because there's so much, well, the links are so strong there to, to not just the club, but to the people around them and to the city as well. You know, bear in mind that Napoli is one of, you know, the great footballing cities. It's, it's a kind of place where... It's a sun-drenched city scorched with inflamed passions. It's one of the most intense and obsessive cities about the game in, in, in Europe, I would say. They're desperate for this reinvigoration of glories that are far enough in the past that they feel like history, but maybe not far enough that they're too out of reach to recall. And so Napoli have come in, kind of come to this point where they feel like they have this relationship with this glorious failure, right? They punch above the odds and then they fall just short. You've brought these players in in the summer, you know, the likes of... Kvara, uh, the likes of Kim Min Jae, who's come in to replace uh, Kudabali, and these two strikers who, who have stepped into the breach in, in Raspadori and Simeone, who maybe don't have this link yet with the club and, and the kind of full understanding of the historical, I wouldn't say failures, but those kind of, those kind of moments where you go, oh, yeah. Napoli have done it again. And there's a kind of fresh feel about the whole club and they don't maybe have that weight of glorious failure on their shoulders. Yeah, the burden of having come close so many times before and kind of failing in in quite dramatic circumstances. I think while it's admirable, and not just at Napoli, but at every football club, for players to kind of show their emotion, football's a game where 
in those pressurized moments, you need to be able to kind of strip that back and just concentrate on on what's going on in front of you. And if you're an Insignia, a Mertens, a Kudabai, and you're you're tied so much to this, not just to the club, but to the city itself, there probably are going to be moments in a game where you feel it so intensely that, and again, I'm not a professional footballer. Uh, I, di- I do play semi-pro though, so I, I, maybe I have a, a small glimpse into their world, but it, I, I, I'm sure there are moments where they just are so aware of, you know, if if we lose this game, this is going to crush the city, this is going to crush the fan base. And so like you kind of said, for this new generation of players to come through and maybe not have that that burden weighing on their shoulders and to kind of be free of that, just that history of, of, of failures and things like that is often really helpful. Um, and again, I think we've probably, I don't know why I'm constantly mentioning Arsenal today, but we're probably seeing that a little bit with some of the new players they brought through who are not linked to, to Emery and the Wenger era and they're just kind of being allowed to to go ahead and express themselves and, and maybe that's what we're seeing in Napoli as well. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really fair comparison in many ways. The one place that I have got questions or, or question marks, I suppose, is in goal. Now, Alex Merritt has the ability to be absolutely sensational and ridiculous in the same game and it's not really what you're after, but they were linked <laughs> with Kaylor Navas in August. And I wonder if they go back in for him in January, obviously not playing any minutes at all now at PSG. We, we've done a rumour very much claiming that number one spot for his own. But if they were to bring in Kaylor Navas in January, I, I think you're looking at one of the most well-rounded squads in Europe. And I, I'd be very surprised if they don't at least have a look. I mean, surely they've got to, um, yeah, at least see if that's a, a possibility um, because they've, I'm sure even surpassed their own expectations this season and where they are at the moment. And so with the form that Juventus are showing at the moment and some of the other teams in the league, you know, we know Inter have been a little bit resurgent, but they've kind of had their sticky patches. You know, AC Milan lost this weekend. And Napoli are kind of in a very, very strong position. And any opportunity to kind of capitalise on that and strengthen, what they don't want to happen is to get to May, to maybe have missed out on the title by just a couple of points and be looking at that January transfer window and saying, do you know what? We didn't push for signing as much as we should have done. So although obviously every club needs a long-term strategy, sometimes when you're in the in the middle of, of something a little bit unexpected, you just kind of just have to roll the dice and see what happens. And it feels like Napoli should do that in January. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. They've got a test, obviously, against Liverpool in midweek at Anfield. We're going to talk about Liverpool in, in, in greater depth in just a minute. But these are the kind of games that you look at and go, right, then prove it. And so, if, you know, if we're sitting here next week being like, oh, they lost it mm. to Liverpool. But so far, so good in terms of playing big teams for Napoli this season. Obviously, with the amount of wins they've racked up, there's, there's not many they haven't beaten. But you look at that Liverpool game in the first leg in Naples. You look at the two Ajax games, which they came through pretty comfortably unscathed, I felt. Uh, and then you look at their record against the what is the big seven, I suppose, in, in Italy mm. this season. And they're three wins from three uh, against other t- title contenders you'd probably say um at this point in the season which is a pretty pretty stunning record so far you know we're coming into into November now this is not just a flash in the pan start this is a start that has real real momentum to it they've they've stood up in the big games so far this season and they have a massive opportunity to go perfect in the group stages if they would go and win at Anfield 
Yeah, and on those kind of big moments, you only have to look back to, to last week against Roma where Osimhen kind of scores a goal out of absolutely nothing. So having a player who can kind of give you that X factor in those big games is, is absolutely crucial. And even if they don't get a positive result against Liverpool in, in midweek, I think how they react and respond to that will probably tell us a little bit more about their character because Liverpool are also in a little bit of a strange place where, and again, we'll come on to it, they're playing poorly, but the Champions League's almost been their, their respite this season. So Napoli should, shouldn't be going into that game thinking, well, Liverpool just lost 2-1 to Leeds. They've lost to Nottingham Forest. They're a bit all over the place. We're, we're going to capitalise. They need to be a little bit careful. But what's interesting as well is that before the World Cup, they um, Napoli play Atalanta and Udinese. So if they're still kind of flying high at the top of the league by the World Cup, then that kind of says it all because they would have played most of the, the top seven in Serie A and they would have kind of come through with, with flying colours. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, talking to Liverpool, let's come on to it. They were beaten 2-1 at Anfield on USA Network by Jesse Marsh's Leeds United. Their first loss at home in the league since March 2021, over 18 months. I'll give you a quick guess as to who beat them in March 2021, Joe. Man City? No. Crystal Palace? No. Don't tell me it's Fulham or something like that. It was indeed Fulham. Mario Lamina scored the only goal in a 1-0 win. It was. Win. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I should have known some, that. Yeah, you should have You should have really taken the guess. <laughs> I um, should have known look, that. We'll give some real credit to Leeds in a moment because they deserve it. But Liverpool have lost twice in the Premier League in a row now. First Nottingham Forest, now here. They're all over the place in, in so many ways. It, it's the impossible question to ask, I think, maybe. But what is going on? I mean, if, I, if I've got the answer to this question, then I think Liverpool <laughs> need to hire me. That's all I'm going to say. Not, not as Klopp's uh, replacement, but maybe just as a, a little short-term assistant role or something like that. I, I don't really know, but um, I remember watching a game on Saturday and five minutes in, I just did that classic thing where I text my mate saying, this game's going to be 4-3. Um, it was just so chaotic for a minute one. Even before Rodrigo scored, it was a game that suited Leeds perfectly. Um and I know we are going to talk about Leeds in a minute, but just quickly, it reminded me of when Leeds played Arsenal because Leeds really rattled Arsenal and Arsenal were lucky to come out of that game with a win. Just any game where, I remember someone described Leeds a couple of years ago, okay, it was under Bielsa, but they still kind of have those um, traits under Jesse Marsh as like a basketball game, yeah. high scoring, loads of energy, end to end. And I just thought, Liverpool kind of playing into to Leeds' hands and the fact that they went down so early kind of helped. It's a really tricky thing to kind of look at that Liverpool team and, and say, why are these players who were on the cusp of achieving a quadruple last year suddenly falling away completely? Obviously, if you kind of look at the individuals, I, I, I've said on this podcast before, I really do feel for Trent because anytime he plays, whether he has a good performance or a bad performance... People are going to have an endless debate about it. But again, there were times in that game where I think his his lack of defensive awareness was really on show. Thiago's kind of like one of my favourite players to watch. I think just when he's on the ball, his passing, his dribbling, etc. is just, I mean, I just couldn't encourage young kids to watch the way he plays more. He's so intelligent, but he doesn't play enough. Um, always got some sort of injury and he's just not a player you can kind of consistently rely on. Um, Fabinho's been out of sorts and 
I know Darwin Nunez, I'm sure, will kind of fulfil his potential over time. But at the moment, it just seems like he rushes all of his decisions and makes a lot of bad decisions in front of goal um, that are costing his team at times. He definitely had two or three chances against Leeds on Saturday where I thought, you should be you should be scoring that. Um, regardless of whether you're a £10 million striker or an £80 million striker, there are chances that you should really be putting away at that level and he, and, and he just didn't do it. And then obviously Salah's been... I know he scored on, on Saturday, but he's still hit and miss. So it just feels like there are, I guess, a team like Liverpool, when one player's not at their top level, they can get away with it. But when two or three aren't at their top level, um, I guess it just all starts to crumble. And that's, and that's what we're seeing at the moment. It's It's bizarre because I really did think they'd react just a little bit better over the summer than this. Um, and for people who are wondering, my, my little brother's a big Liverpool fan. I, I, I don't support Liverpool. My little brother's a big Liverpool fan. And um, he did that classic thing where he's like, oh, Liverpool's not got enough midfielders. We need we need Klopp to go out and spend more money. And I said, I said, bro, you're, look at your team. You've nearly just won the quadruple. What you what you're talking about? You need more reinforcements. And it's come round to, well, we're basically November now. And I, I turned around to him the other day and said, you know what, you're right. There's just something something wrong with this team at the moment and it just seems like it's not just one thing it feels like it's six seven eight different things that have all added up yeah I think this is it right it's, it's really easy to go looking for simplistic solutions to what is clearly like a multi-dimensional problem there there's lots of different elements going on at Liverpool that make things hard and and yes it's easy to say well, why aren't they throwing more money at things but I don't think really that's how Liverpool have operated. You know, it's been trying to stay within the limits of of FFP and dealing with those yeah. issues. It's about the fact that, you know, the the FSG ownership clearly isn't taking money out of the club, which I think is a, is a good thing. But that means, you know, notably that there isn't all that much going in in terms of spending ahead of, of schedule. So they clearly have a, a kind of spending motive and, and that's what they can do. They can move around from window to window a little bit, but without major sales, it's really hard. I think there is an element that Klopp is over-reliant on certain players, even when they're out of form. And, you know, just I think they'll be, we'll come on to Klopp and, and where people stand on him at the moment. But I think he's got loads of credit in the bank because he is Jurgen Klopp and, and what he's achieved at the club. But equally, you look at some of the squad players that were moved out at Liverpool and you're thinking... OK, with, with players playing the way they are, Nico Williams was sold in the summer. Right, I think they got good money for him. It was a good deal. But would he have been useful in this season when things are maybe not quite working out to plan at right back? Yeah, probably. Taki Minamino was sold to Monaco. Would he have been a player that could have achieved things this season, if, especially if they're playing now with a number 10 in, in that role? Very possibly. There's lots of different things in it. And and maybe part of it is obviously this this ageing midfield. But part of it is also that I don't know how you can compensate or or plan for the fact that Fabinho from going like as the best probably the best number six in the world last season him Rodri Joshua Kimmich for me the, the kind of leading lights all of a sudden looks like he's a, a shadow of the player that he was before and, and that's not helping any of the players around him to reach their level either yeah and Fabinho has such a critical role in them in their midfield um, where he kind of acts as that defensive screen and kind of allows your Tiagos and your, your Naby Keitas kind of go on and be a little bit more creative. So if he's kind of failing in that in that regard and he's not being a, a being a defensive screen, then 
Virgil van Dijk and Joe Gomez and Trent and Andy Robertson are going to have a much bigger workload. So it's kind of like that issue then um, impacts another thing, which then impacts another thing. Um, and it all just becomes a little bit chaotic. But like you said, the way Fabinho has been hassled and harried by opponents in recent games um, is definitely a little bit a bit, a bit concerning because he's supposed to be a strong central defensive midfielder. And the way he's kind of just been knocked off the ball and bypassed, <laughs> I'm sure some people are worrying, is this just a temporary loss of form or is this him beginning to decline in his ha- decline in his powers and I'm sure it's just a temporary loss of form and before you know it he'll be he'll be he'll be playing at his top form again but it is definitely a little bit worrying do you reckon I mean there are questions uh, it's not do you reckon there are questions it's you know do there need to be questions about Klopp's management of this situation again not in terms of his job security because I think that would be madness considering what he's achieved at this football club but just in terms of how he's played this situation and and the way he's kind of gone about things you know there, there there are kind of questions you can ask about about how things are being run you know who who is the person that went right Jordan Henderson has two years left on his contract at this age we should give him another one um not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that in itself but it, it just feels like a short-term major kind of decision that was that was made very quickly especially when when Jeannie Wijnaldum was kind of let go for being at a similar age threshold. And and so then you kind of look and go, well, that was a, was that a Klopp decision? And if so, and, you know, if, if the, are these the reasons why he continues to, to play him or is it just because there literally isn't enough bodies in there because of the injuries that they've suffered? But I, I just think, you know, you go formation changes, personnel switches, it all feels very chaotic and all over the place. In the past, Liverpool have harnessed that chaos, right? We were talking about heavy metal football and all of this, but this time it feels like the chaos might be eating them up. Yeah, definitely. And obviously if they, they've not been helped with um, injuries at the back to Canate and Matip, but then again, yes, Matip had a fantastic season last year, but he has always been a very injury-prone player. And I know... Joe Gomez was, you know, I think he basically was the man of the match in the in the victory over Manchester City, and he kind of made that mistake for the for the for the first go against Leeds. But Joe Gomez is a player who's not played a lot of minutes in the last two or three years because he's been constantly hampered by by injuries as well. So when you kind of all of a sudden are kind of relying on those players who haven't had a lot of experience over the last couple of seasons, it's only natural that they're going to make mistakes. And the point you made about Nico Williams. I think is a great one um, because when Trent hasn't been playing, they've been playing James Milner and look, I'm not about to rain on James Milner's parade. He's a fantastic professional, but do you really want a converted midfielder playing at right back for you week in, week out in the Premier League when you're already lacking in performances a little bit and you need to be kind of going up the table? I don't think you do. And like you said, Nico Williams probably would have been a, a much better option the Minamino thing again is interesting. Chamberlain is you just can't rely on Chamberlain again. He's one of those players who's too injured. So they're kind of caught in a little bit of a storm here where, as you've alluded to, they've got a few players like Henderson who are getting a little bit older. I think Liverpool have definitely got one of the highest um or one of the oldest average ages in terms of their starting eleven in the Premier League this season. I can't think what it is exactly, but I think it was twenty nine years old in one of their recent games, which is yeah, ridiculously high. So you've got that that factor of players getting a little bit older. 
you've got the factor of they seem to have players who pick up quite a lot of injuries, got players who've completely dropped out of form. Then you're trying to move on from Mane and completely switch the way you're playing to kind of suit Darwin Nunez. But then he's not showing his best. It's everything that you're trying to, to do at the moment not working. But then perhaps you maybe should have had the 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 intuition to kind of foresee that this might be a problem in the summer. But then that's kind of the the art of being a football manager. When's the right time to sell a player that you've you know, that you've had at the club for four, five, six years that everybody loves. It's so tricky. Knowing when, okay, a little bit like with Napoli. Four months ago, everybody thought it was a ridiculous decision and that they were in a terrible place that they were letting all of their kind of like veteran players go. And it's turned out to be a masterstroke. Maybe in reflection, Liverpool could have said, hmm, maybe this is the year that we refresh the midfield and not next year. But as you've also said, that would have required a lot of money. And FSG are not the kind of people to throw money around just for the sake of it. It, it needs to be part of a long-term strategy. So it feels like there are just a million things not going quite right at that club at the moment. Yeah, agreed. I mean, that Mane to Nunez, which might well be necessary in terms of refreshing, but the early red card, et cetera, et cetera, meant he struggled to get maybe into the groove of this deal. I think he'll come good. I think his work rate is, is, is exceptional. And I think that he is a, a seriously talented player. I was really, really enjoying watching him at, at Benfica last year. I thought he might need another year just to kind of keep Whoa. keep moving up in the world. But yeah. I, I think he will succeed long-term. Even even if it's not at Liverpool, I, I think he will succeed long-term in, in European football. But I mean, kind of finally on Liverpool, before we quickly go to Leeds, is this World Cup actually coming at a really good time for Liverpool? Because... It's some time to just reset things and get themselves back into that right headspace. <laughs> it depends how far some of their players go in that I tournament, suppose. to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I guess the one advantage is that um, Salah won't be... Is Salah uh, no, at Salah, Salah, Salah won't be there. Roberts not, won't I didn't be think... there. There's, there's, there's a fair few yeah. players here that won't be going. Yeah, so I think um, that probably helps them out that, that Salah's not going to be there. And like you said, Robertson and a couple of others. Um, but then a huge core of their squad, you'd what, expect eight, nine, ten or so players are going to be involved in that tournament, which means Klopp is kind of robbed of the time of being able to kind of sort things out on the training ground. But then what they might actually need is a bit of a breather. Maybe that's kind of what they need. Maybe they need time to kind of, I guess they never really had the time to kind of process what happened at the end of last season. And maybe that's what they need. Maybe they just need a, a break where, Salah goes off on on holiday for two weeks and, and watches the World Cup on a TV, gets the opportunity to kind of refresh his legs and things like that, and then they come back firing. Um, I do think it, it it will benefit them because at the moment, they lost to Nottingham Forest, they lost to Leeds, two teams who've been really struggling in the Premier League this season. It's not a good look. So any opportunity to kind of take stock of, of what's not going well and to spend time out on the training pitch and, and kind of get into the nuts and bolts of it um, will definitely help them out. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, Let's flip to Leeds because there was increasing pressure on Jesse Marsh last week after that that loss to Fulham. There was a lot of vitriol flying around Ellen Road. This will buy Mm. him some time. Um, because it, it just takes the pressure off a little bit in in terms of Leeds. And one of the major stories in this game was the return of Tyler Adams, who'd obviously missed that last game. He played the game against Arsenal. They were very, very good. He didn't play against Fulham. Yeah. They were bad. He plays against Liverpool. <laughs> they were good. Um, now, I don't want to suggest that Leeds are a one-man team, but the US will be delighted to see that he's having that kind of impact in games. And I thought he was sensational here, um, running around, putting out fires, uh, the link between the Leeds defender. Uh, the midfield and attack, which we've we've seen they've struggled with at times this season. So so, so it was a great result for, for Jesse Marsh, but also um, a hell of a performance from Tyler Adams. So a, a US double on that one. Yeah, definitely. And, and firstly, before I, I speak about Tyler Adams, I obviously said it earlier, but Leeds were really unlucky not to get something out of that Arsenal game. So although I could understand why fans were perhaps getting a little bit frustrated with their with with their results, it also felt like, oh, okay, at least maybe compared to a few of the other teams in the division, certainly Nottingham Forest at the time, it felt like they had a little bit more of a structure and what they were kind of lacking um, was Bamford just not being in, in particularly good form. And again, I think we touched on that last week that he's had a lot of injuries and things like that. Um, but against Liverpool, again, from minute one, I just felt like they were going to cause them a lot of problems looks really effective and yeah Tyler Adams was at the heart of that we again we've mentioned on this podcast before he did not have an easy job coming into a team and effectively replacing Calvin Phillips who was the heartbeat of that team was a local lad and to kind of come in into a new league um, into a new side and kind of show that level of maturity and players like Tyler Adams are always my favourite because they're the kind of guys who don't often get singled out for individual praise, but are vital to any team because they do the dirty stuff well and they do the simple stuff well. Like you said, breaking up Liverpool's attacks, keeping possession, not trying to do anything too fancy, keeping the ball moving, keeping it rolling and really, really impressive performance from him. He's he's definitely been, again, along with Brendan Aronson, who I've raved over before as well um, because on the counter, he just... He's absolutely frightening. And I think I think he hit the bar against um, Liverpool, if I'm mm. right. Those two, the way they've taken to the, to, to the Premier League and to Leeds, 
I think Leeds would probably be worse off without both of them. Well, I don't, I don't think that's a bold statement. I know the Leeds would be worse off without <laughs> those two. Yeah, they would definitely be worse off without those two. So, so from that, in that regard, that's very encouraging. Yes, indeed, indeed. Right, let's keep things rolling. And I think we should talk a little bit about Bayern Munich in our third part today. There were some early question marks this season, Jay, after some bad results, especially in the league. But Julian Nagelsmann has got them absolutely cooking at the moment. They beat Mines 6-2 on ESPN+. I've been really, really impressed with this. Um, now, the underlying numbers, and we talked about this when we were looking at Bayern mm. not winning a couple of games in, in a row, and we said, oh, the numbers are good. It, it'll come good. Just naturally, there, there's a little bit of, of iffy finishing, but... 32 goals in their last eight games. They're averaging four goals a game. There were questions as to how they were going to function without Lewandowski and the kind of 40 to 50 goals a season that he would score. Those questions are fast fading. I hate to say I told you so, but <laughs> I told you so. Um, it, it is so crazy because if you remember the, the very first few games of the season when, when Bayern came out quite strongly, you had those same kind of um, accusations of the Bundesliga is boring. Um, I think Michael Cox wrote that piece about Bayern should start every game 1-0 down. And then within a few weeks, it felt like everyone had kind of cursed Bayern. Um, went four games without winning, which was, I think, their worst start in the Bundesliga um, since 2010. I think, I think they had 12 points after seven games. It was the first time they'd gone four games without winning in the Bundesliga in 21 years. Um so some people were very quick to to hit the crisis button, I guess, from Bayern Munich's perspective. It, that that is a crisis, which kind of shows you just how ridiculously good they are. But as you, as you mentioned, we looked at the underlying numbers and said this team will come good. Um, and the fact that they've just scored so many goals in recent games, and it's also the maybe the 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 characters you wouldn't expect to have been popping up and scoring goals is probably the most the worrying aspect of it. So Chupa Moting's now scored six goals in his last five games in all competitions. Musiala just continues to kind of get better and better with each game. He's now got 10, 10 goals in all competitions. So the fact that they're not relying on maybe your normal source of goals in terms of your, your, your Thomas Muller's, your Serge Gnabry's, the fact that it's the, the supporting cast who are chipping in as well, I think that's what's what's more frightening than anything else. Yeah, well, this is it, isn't it? It's Nile Goodman's diversification of attack. And I, I like this kind of phrase, but I, I also like that this is something that the Nagelsmann has stuck to. Now, obviously, if you're handed Robert Lewandowski, you're going to utilise him as best you can. But when he wants to leave, you go, right, well, I can use this as an opportunity to to actually start to, to spread the goals out a little bit more around this team. Look, goals for all of the front four in this game. But this is also a team currently without Muller, without Sane, Coman coming off the bench. The strength in depth here is ludicrous. And, you know, as you said there, Eric Maxime Chupomoting is back and he's thriving. And it's been really interesting to watch him play because I think as a kind of backup to Lewandowski, he didn't struggle per se. I think maybe that's unfair, but he kind of was expected to do a certain thing. But Nagelsmann is using him and utilising him and starting him over the likes of Kingsley Coman at the moment because of what he offers in terms of channel running, in terms of the fact that he can move around this front four. He's he's one of those players that's very, very versatile. He's able to slot in in, in a number of different roles here. He can move about the pitch and, and make way for other people. And I think there's an element of, of unselfishness to his play, which 
maybe sometimes you don't want in a striker. And if you are looking at a team that run through a number nine, you need them to be selfish and clinical. It's the traits that, that define the world's best. But actually, if you're playing in a team where the goals are spread around the park, that selflessness actually comes into its own, I think, in, in, in many ways. And, and Nagelsmann was interviewed about his role and, and, and Chuba Moting coming back into this team. And he was saying, well, yeah, he was like, I wasn't expecting him to be part, start of my, you know, part of my starting selections really this season. I saw him as a, as a rotation player, but he's made himself undroppable. And I think, you know, it's an incredible little story going on there. Yeah. And like you said, when um, Bayern Munich had Robert Lewandowski, one of the, the greatest number nines of, of this generation, potentially of all time, yeah. you're going to play to suit his strengths. And when he, he leaves, okay, it's slightly difficult. It's not slightly difficult. It is dis- difficult to replace those goals. But one of the ways you can do that is by being a little bit more fluid. And as you kind of alluded to, the options Bayern Munich have up front, they're all so versatile and can just interchange positions freely. You know, you've got Mane starting as a centre forward in one game, then moving out to the left wing. We know that Sane likes to pop up in different positions when he's fit and he's been phenomenal this season. So the fact that Chupo Moting does kind of offer you that flexibility. Again, I've banged on about it so many times, but it just means you're so unpredictable as a team. If you're a centre-back pairing and you're coming up against a player who one minute is drifting out to the right, then drifting out to the left, then the left winger Mane is coming inside. It must be an absolute nightmare to kind of make sure that everybody's aware of who they're marking. And that just causes chaos and it just allows you to thrive because those those pockets of space open up. And, and, it was it was really good that, that Chupo Moting did get that goal in the end on, on Saturday against Mainz. Um, he had to wait a while for it. But I mean, even his assist for, for Musiala's goal, yeah. you know, he's got two players, you know, kind of, well, he's pinning two players back and he still manages to get the little flick around the corner. Stuff like that. It's, it's brilliant to see. So fair play to him for kind of making the most of his opportunity and forcing himself into Nagelsmann's starting eleven. Yeah, I thought there was, you know, the other nice story from this was was young Mathis Tell, who scored again off, off the bench. It's such a wonderful place for him to be developing, right, in this system because the expectations on him at the start of the season and he was given that number nine shirt and you're going, oh God, not, I'm not <laughs> 100% sure about that. Um, that is that is a big, heavy shirt to be taking off from, from Lewandowski. <laughs> um, but he's not been forced into the team and there were kind of question marks when they weren't scoring as many goals over whether they were going to just drop him in and be like, right, off you go, sink or swim. And that's kind of, cut, we've come away from that now. He's being able to be used off the bench. He's getting those minutes without overloading his workload. Um, and he's he's in a system that is currently creating an absolute glut of chances. It's an amazing place for him to be developing. Yeah, and there are probably parallels to be drawn with the way that kind of Pep Guardiola treated Phil Foden. Um, you kind of, when Foden obviously first kind of came onto the scene, you had this raging debate about, Guardiola should be playing Foden every single week and he should be playing him as a central attacking midfielder. Playing him on the left wing is kind of ruining his development. Playing him as a false nine is ruining his development. And now Foden's, you know, rapidly becoming one of the greatest greatest players going. He's such a creative talent. And if that's happening with Matthias Tell, then that's absolutely perfect. If he's being able to kind of come on in games without too much pressure and being able to kind of work out what his precise role is in this team, that's absolutely perfect because what you don't want as a 17-year-old, is to kind of be burdened with this pressure of, right, come on, you've got to go ahead and deliver and we're going to be starting you week in, week out. Just allow him to, to to ease him in and that will pay dividends. Sometimes it's, well, not sometimes, most of the time it's best to 
to play the long game. Of course, people want to see him because he's such an exciting talent, but the way he's been handled at the moment, it, it, the, the kind of results and the performances speak for themselves. Yeah, yeah, big fan of what Ilian Nal Guzman is doing. But I think it's probably time for us to have a look around the grounds, Jay. Let's start in La Liga, where Real Madrid dropped points to Girona. They could only draw one all. Tony Kroos sent off in this one. That's not something I've feel like I've said very often over the course of Tony Kroos' career. Bad week for Real Madrid. First a loss to Leipzig, then this. They're only one point ahead of Barcelona now. I don't think it's... Well, it's not crisis mode, let's be very clear. Um, but it, it's not been particularly good. And they were poor here, I thought. Yeah. And do you know what? This should really be a wake-up call for, for Real Madrid because... It felt like when they beat Barcelona a couple of weeks ago and Barcelona were, were plunged into another one of their crises, almost felt like some people would almost crown Real Madrid as the La Liga champions there and then because they'd started the season so strongly and it felt like Barcelona were on the, the cusp of unravelling. So I think this week is probably a little bit of a, a course corrective to say that, yes, Barcelona are a, a strange club doing strange things, but you know they're only a point behind. And by the way, Barcelona have only conceded four goals in La Liga this year yeah. and three of them were in one game against Real Madrid. So we definitely need to take them seriously. But definitely frustration boiling over in this game. And, and I think Cruz's red card kind of proves that because it's such a needless tackle um, in, what was it, the extra time, like yeah, the 91st time, minute yeah. or, or something like that. Um, and you could even see as he kind of got booked that that kind of realisation on, on him dawned that yeah, I've, I've kind of lost my lost my head here and done something silly. So it's not a crisis at all. I think it's just kind of a little bit of a reality check for them. Yeah, I mean, look, Barcelona had a weird one. They weren't great either, but they found a late winner to see off Valencia. Um, they might have struggled against Bayern and they might have struggled in El Clasico, but in La Liga, that's three big wins in a row and their best league start in the last five years. It's not all bad at Barcelona. Yes, the financial situation is a bit of a mess. Yes, the not being able to get out of the Champions League groups is a major blow, even if that is a really, really tough group. But you're still looking at this and thinking... Mm. This is a very good side and especially if they don't have European football to hugely contend with in the spring, they will fancy their chances of wresting this league title back from Real Madrid. Yeah, but that's the bizarre thing. Why do they seem to be so competent in La Liga this season? But in the in the Champions League, they're putting in really, um, I think it's fair to say, immature performances. Mm. But the thing that shocked me the most is when you kind of look back on, on Barcelona's summer, what kind of strikes, what I remember most from it was them buying Rafinha, was them getting in Lewandowski on top of buying Depay and Ferran Torres and all those kind of players in the last couple of years, renewing Dembele's contract. I'm thinking this Barcelona team's going to be so top heavy and obviously they have scored a lot of goals, but the fact that they've only conceded four, that's what makes me think, okay, um, they are going to push Real Madrid the whole way this season. Um, not that they wouldn't, but just to only concede four goals after 12, 13 games is, is, and and for three of them to come in the same game is like a phenomenal achievement. Yeah. Um, so if they can kind of keep that going, then they've got every chance of wrestling the kind of top of the ti top of the title, top of the table back from Real. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting that they've managed to do that as well with a very, very makeshift back four at the moment. Um, obviously, the centre-back injury crisis is in full swing at Barcelona. We see Marcos Alonso at centre-back. 
the last couple of games, which I think is potentially part of the problem. But, um, it, you know, <laughs> over the course of this, the, the fact that, that Marc-Andre Testegen has been so good um, and the fact that they've been able to keep these clean sheets with... Uh, with his makeshift patched up back four, I think is good signs for Barcelona. Um, and it, it kind of points to things going in the right direction in, in league football at the very least. Um, Real Betis beat Real Sociedad in San Sebastián, a frantic, fiery encounter on Sunday night. Uh, they leap them in the table to go fourth. They're level on points with Atletico in third. This was a big win for Betis because whilst they've been cooking nicely in Europe... It hasn't gone to plan in La Liga for the last couple of weeks. And, you know, at the start of the season, I said pretty openly that I think Betis are the third best team in terms of on the squad on paper and, and the way that they're managed in Spain this season. And then they went and, and kept getting players sent off. They had a really, really strange old time, Betis, for the last couple of weeks. This was a big win at Anoeta, which is not an easy place to go. And they jump Real Sociedad. It felt like a, a really necessary one for Betis to get over the line. Talking of Atleti, they had an absolutely mad one themselves, Jay. They knocked, they were knocked out of the Champions League in midweek, obviously, but they were 2-0 down against Cadiz. They hauled themselves back to 2-all, only to go and concede a 99th minute winner. Tough little period for Diego Simeone, you know, and, and again, someone we're talking about here with incredible amounts of credit in the bank. But he is also the highest paid coach in world football. And currently, Atleti look a shadow of themselves. I did not know he was the highest paid coach in the world of football and I feel like I should, but that is absolutely crazy. But I mean, obviously fair play to Cadiz for kind of digging in and, and, and beating Atleti, but to come back from 2-0 down in the final five minutes of a game and then end up losing 3-2, you kind of have to ask questions about the team's maturity and because that just, to me, that just seems so naive. Um, it feels like they've probably allowed themselves to kind of get caught up in the celebrations and the emotion of bringing it back, but they've not refocused and realigned themselves. And like you said, when you are kind of paid that much money, you know, you need to make sure that the performances are there. And as, as you said a minute ago, you feel like Real Betis are the third best best team in the um, in the league of this season. Um, so Simeone kind of needs to be justifying his, his pay packet and kind of performances like that certainly aren't the way to go about it. No, I think you've nailed it, though, in terms of maturity, because obviously they missed that last minute penalty to keep themselves in the competition in midweek. And then they go and concede a 99th mm. minute winner. These these are not pretty times for Atleti. And this squad is, is better than, than what they're currently performing at. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that one plays out. Uh, in France, PSG played out a mad 4-3 over Troyes. Goals for all of the big three again. But one of the most ridiculous pieces of individual skill from Neymar to set up a chance for Mbappe at one point. A genuine crime that Mbappe doesn't finish this <laughs> off. It is, it, is, it is football criminality in its kind of finest form. I was furious at him. Um, so one of those, it was, it was a strange game in some ways, but the, you know, all three of them on the score sheet again, and they're relatively clear at the top of Liga. It's, it's going okay for PSG. Yeah, definitely. But just on that um, that piece of skill from Neymar, I sometimes, not sometimes, I cannot understand how players control the ball that well at that level of football um, because it looked like he was playing with kids or it looked like he was playing down at the local park with his mates. Like the way he just kind of effortlessly glided through that, that kind of midfield and even kind of shrugged off a couple of, couple of challenges yeah, simply crazy. 
Um, but obviously, fair play to PSG for getting the win. Slightly chaotic circumstances. And like you said, all three of them on the score sheet. But you do just kind of feel like it's, <laughs> you just never really know what to expect from them. That It feels like in any one game or any one week, they can swing from the amazing to to the crazy do you know what I mean yeah yeah the that kind of really good defensive record from the start of the season has got a little bit out of the window but it doesn't exactly. matter if you've got these three up front in so many exactly. ways um Lom and Ren continue to stay their biggest threat in the title race I don't think many people saw that coming five wins in a row for Ren four out of five for Lons. Uh they've both been incredibly consistent deserve huge credit uh, and a tough week for Marseille got tougher yet they were 2-1 up against Strasbourg going into injury time only to concede a late equaliser from such a good start they're on shaky ground at the moment both in the league and in Europe uh, Serias saw Juventus win 1-0 over Lecce another youth product with the goal and you do wonder if Juventus's best bet is to just bank on this incredible array of young talent given how badly everything else seems to be going but um, you know Samuel Hurling Jr coming on and causing absolute chaos again after he did against Benfica in the mm. week uh, a real a real talent on their hands there but his even his contract's up at the end of the summer and I do worry about Juventus's ability to keep these players on the books. Yeah, and with with Juve, I think it's important to to mention that after their, I don't know if mini revival is the right turn of phrase, but after they won two games in the league and and kind of Allegri switched up the formation last week, we kind of praised them for potentially turning a corner, um, but we said it would all hinge on what happened in the Champions League. And obviously, they just completely unravelled. Yeah. Um, were blown away by Benfica and were four-one down in the fiftieth minute. So they should have lost that game. I've decided six-one. I've decided the score should have been six-one. <laughs> How Benfica didn't score again, I will never know. I mean, without Erling, that it, it would have been the case. So Juve, maybe, kind of accepting that this season is going to be one of. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not rejuvenation, um, uh, but just kind of like transition. switching from transition. That's the one. Yeah, maybe just accepting that this is going to be a transitional season. Um, obviously lost a few big players in the summer and kind of just, yeah, moving on to a kind of a newer cohort of players, similar to kind of how we were talking about Napoli earlier, but it looks to be far less successful at this moment. Yeah. That might be the best way for them to go at the moment. Yeah, of course. Um, I heaped praise on Lazio last week. So naturally, their brilliant run of wins and not conceding came crashing down <laughs> at home to Salernitana. Uh, Antonio Candreva scored the pick of these goals for Salernitana. A glorious lob to tie this one up at one all. Truly spectacular. Do go and check that out if you haven't seen it. Uh, and Milan lost 2-1 to Torino as well, which means Napoli are now five points clear at the top of the table. Uh, and Inter's resurgence continued with more Barella ball they bought beat Sampdoria in a very comfortable 3-0 on Saturday night um, in Germany big win for Borussia Dortmund they beat Eintracht Frankfurt 2-1 another big goal for Jude Bellingham turning out to be the winner in this one he is I'm running out of superlatives Jay is probably how I, I think it's best to put it he just continues to excel in pretty much every aspect of the game I'm again I'm also in the same camp as you where I'm not really too sure what else I can say about Jude Bellingham. I think I compared him to someone who was um, maybe like 16, 17, playing with 11-year-olds last week, and, and it's always the case. I just cannot understand why he is... Well, I can understand it. It's because he's an exceptionally good player. It doesn't... My brain can't compute the fact that he's so young, yeah. that tall, that confident, that special, 
that the Dortmund team just completely <laughs> revolves around him and, and players who are way, way, way more experienced than him kind of look towards him to, to be the leader. Um, he's he's an exceptional, exceptional player. Let's talk about this next generation of complete midfielders and, you know, you're talking about Bellingham and, and Valverde and how they've both just stepped mm, up again this yeah. season. It really does feel like they are just complete. And Barella, Barella probably in that conversation as well. I'm a massive, massive Barella fan. Um but Union Berlin and Freiburg both won again as well. I mean, their places in the table, first and third respectively, remain secure. Freiburg in particular this weekend impressed me hugely. They're so defensively secure in a league where chaos reigns in transition. It's just one of those things that they they stand out. I mean, Union's defensive record we've talked about before, but just the way that Freiburg set up, I'm always incredibly impressed by. Um, and Bayer Leverkusen beaten 2-0 by RB Leipzig. There are signs of life under Chabi Alonso, but it's not quite clicking yet for Leverkusen. Uh, and finally, in the Premier League, no Erling Haaland for City. So naturally, Kevin De Bruyne stepped up to score a bullet free kick. The only goal as City saw off Leicester at the King Power. Arsenal continued to lead the pack. They smashed Nottingham Forest 5-0 at the Emirates. The big story here, Jay, though, was Reese Nelson. Came on to replace Mikayo Saka, who got a knock and scored twice. Great to see him back in the team and back starring after a really good season on loan at Feyenoord last year. Yeah, that's that is a huge moment for Reese Nelson, and it's something I really hope he can kind of um, capitalize upon um, because obviously he's been on loan at Feyenoord. He was on was he at Hertha Berlin a couple of years ago? He's what had was, a couple of loans. Uh, Hoffenheim. Yeah, he was at Hoffenheim. That's it. Um, and I've watched him a few times before, and and he's obviously of the same kind of generation coming out of Arsenal's academy as Bukayo Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe and he's had nowhere near the impact um, they've had on the first team so he was definitely beginning to become the forgotten man um, and the fact that you know Arsenal sent Nicola Pepe out on loan to OGC Nice and kept Reese Nelson and Reese Nelson's kind of popped up and scored two goals in a game like this it feels like it's almost Arteta's way of saying oh, okay well I'm going to give you the opportunity it's up to you to kind of grab it with both hands and he has done. So it'll be intriguing to see how long Bukayo Saka's out for and if he misses their their next game, um, if Nelson is kind of given the given the head to, to start and if so, how he does there. But um, that would be two, two massive, massive goals for Nelson. And it, if, if he kind of can kick on and become an established member of Arsenal's squad from here, um, then that's fantastic for him. Yeah, I'd imagine he gets the nod in the Europa League in midweek. Um, but they yeah. did say it was just a little knock with Bukayo Saka, which I'd imagine English national team fans would have taken with a little bit of a sigh <laughs> of relief. Uh, Graham Potter went back to Brighton and saw his Chelsea side thumped at the Amex. Here's a stat for you, Jay. Before Saturday, Chelsea had never, ever been behind to Brighton in a Premier League game. Uh, and then they were 3-0 down in the first half. First win for Roberto De Zerbi. Wow. Chelsea, though, all over the place here. Yeah, fair play to, to Brighton because, um, as you said, I think this was De Zerbi's fifth or sixth game. I think it was his sixth game now. Um, so, obviously, the kind of pressure was building. Obviously, saw Brighton-Brentford a couple of weeks ago. And although Brentford did win 2-0, Brighton were really good value in that game. Um, Trossard's just kind of come on leaps and bounds. He's always been in a... Been, he's always been a talented player, but he just seems to kind of taken it to another level this year. But Chelsea just looked absolutely shell-shocked. Um, Brighton were all over them. They, I, I mean, they could have taken the lead even earlier than yeah. they did. But also, we just kind of have to have a, a, a brief word on on Potter's tactics because Sterling and Pulisic were basically playing as as wing-backs. And, and when I first kind of saw that lineup, I thought, what on, what on earth is going on there? It almost felt like he tried to be a little bit 
too clever. Um, and I'm sure um, the Brighton fans were absolutely amazed at the fact that they will, will go down as the club who, who beat him as Chelsea manager for the first time. Yeah, they'd be, I imagine that went down really well. I enjoyed the sacked in the morning chants uh, that <laughs> rang around the Amex. Um, look, Chelsea have got a little bit of a, an injury crisis at, at fullback at the moment, so you can understand why they're trying to mix it up a bit. But the actual most interesting person I saw at, at, at right back this in this game was Pascal Gross. Who played right back for Brighton? You know, this is a player who has basically only ever really played as a kind of ten or a winger for his side. <laughs> went to fullback and was absolutely sensational. So, so there you have it. The Zerbi tactical masterclass at Brighton. Uh, Manchester United ground out a one nil win over West Ham United thanks to Marcus Rashford's hundredth goal for the club. A uh, nice moment for him, but seeing a little bit more grit and heart from United, they weren't great here by any means, but they got the job done. Um, so it was that, that I'd imagine that there's a lot of Manchester United fans looking at that and going, OK, we can do it the dirty way as well. And, and, it, and it worked for them here. Um, and the new manager bounce at Villa was wiped out by Newcastle, who had absolutely no mercy for Aaron Danks's second and final game as Villa boss. Unai Emery, Jay, has his work cut out. Yeah, I mean, that was a reality check for Aston Villa after they uh, they thumped Brentford 4-0 last week. Um, but then also, uh, and we did speak about it last week, Newcastle are just on a, another level at the moment. Tear, the, way, the way Miguel Almiron's kind of just t- absolutely taken the league by storm. Um, it feels like the World Cup is, is on absolutely everybody's minds at the moment and there's so much talk about who's going to get in and out of the England squad. Feels like Callum Wilson's kind of come out of nowhere in the last couple of weeks to kind of really put put himself in contention for being named, and it was a another fantastic performance from him. But yeah, from the Aston Villa side, it was kind of a reminder of all the bad things about the team that, that kind of need to be fixed by Unai Emery as, as quickly as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, it's time for us to call it a day here on the Athletic Soccer Show. We hope you've enjoyed our roundup of the big stories across Europe for this weekend. And all that's left for me to do is to say thank you all for listening. If you fancy leaving us a rating and a review, we'd very much appreciate that. Thank you so much to Mr. Jay Harris. Thank you, Jack. And again, thanks to everybody who, who tunes in week in, week out. Uh, I've been Jack Collins. This has been your weekend review and we will see you next week. Take it easy.